Greetings, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. And as this is part of our special series, A Seat at the Table, where we look at the life and career and legacy of a cabinet member, I am joined by a special guest. My special guest today is Kenny Ryan. He is the host of Abridged Presidential Histories. Unlike me, Kenny takes the other approach. Instead of going completely into every minutia and detail, he resists that urge and... (laughs) (laughs) And in an hour goes through the life and career and what the importance is of each person who has served as president. In his brevity, it's filled with much knowledge and insight and wisdom on these folks who have served the United States as president. So without further ado, Kenny, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Jerry, thank you so much for the lovely introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. And for our guests who may not have heard your podcast yet, would you take a moment just to give us a little information about Bridge Presidential Histories, what you do, and where folks can find you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Bridge Presidential Histories looks at the successes, scandals, and setbacks of every president in an hour or less in chronological order. So we started with George Washington close to, I don't know, gosh, a couple of years ago now. And I'm, I'm just now hitting Teddy Roosevelt and McKinley. You can find me on any podcast platform at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. Love to get y'all's feedback. Love to have some new listeners. I think you guys will have some fun. Absolutely. Highly recommend it. And I will be sharing information around the release of this episode on my social media. So please be on the lookout. So as we do with this series, I have not revealed to Kenny who we are going to be talking about today. (laughs) The suspense! (laughs) So he does not know until now that we are going to be talking about Charles Lee. Now, Kenny, do you know anything about Charles Lee? And I would be surprised if you... (laughs) I Like, it sounds familiar, but I I feel like there's just so many other Lees in history. Like, the first thing that comes to mind is this Revolutionary War general who screwed up the battle and, like, was on a feud with Washington. Is is that a different Lee? Or is that the same Lee? It is a different Lee. (laughs) Different Lee. Different Lee. Get it. Then yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning about Charles Lee. Let's go. Yes. Well, without further ado, let's dive into the life of Charles Lee. And in so doing, we will be talking about a few more Lees, especially <laughs> in his early life. So our Charles Lee was born in 1758 in Leesylvania, Virginia. <gasps> what? <laughs> that's when you know that you're with the prominent Lees. They have a town that's named after them. <laughs> Leesylvania. It rolls off the tongue. (laughs) It really does, doesn't it? (laughs) Charles Lee was the third child born to Henry and Lucy Grimes Lee. Now, this uh, was, of course, a branch of the prominent Lee family that is often included as one of the first families of Virginia. Charles's family, by this point, had been in Virginia for five generations. So this is a well-established family, very prominent. His father, Henry, was elected to the Virginia House of Burgesses in 1758. Though we'll be focused in on Charles with this episode, we should note that his siblings included Henry, who listeners may know better as Light Horse Harry Lee, and Richard Blandley, who would become a U.S. representative. 
his nephew, who of course naturally wasn't born at this point, but <laughs> would be born in the future, is also someone that you may have heard of, Robert Ely. Oh but, yeah, he fought in the Mexican American War. <laughs> he did. That's, yeah, that's the only way that people know him nowadays. <laughs> Absolutely, the, the the hero of the Mexican American War. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So Charles would ultimately have 11 siblings total. And as you can imagine, with a prominent Virginia family, the Lees were slaveholders. And at the time of Henry Lee's death, there were 55 people enslaved at the family's Leesylvania plantation. <laughs> I still can't get over Leesylvania. <laughs> I know. <laughs> also, like the last name Lee, you really have to be careful how you name your kids. I noticed you mentioned one's name was like something bland. Lee, now he's just blandly. You know, blandly. You, gotta, you should be like strongly, <laughs> determinedly. Like you should give him names like that, where it's like it, it, it becomes something more powerful. You know? Yeah. They really need to think this through a little bit. Yeah. Smartly, <laughs> you know? Now, I should note that I haven't been able to find an actual birth date for Charles, just the year. And that was odd mm. to me, and especially like with the Lee family. But it also highlights that Charles isn't necessarily the most well-known of the Lees. <laughs> Even though he, had, he did end up as a cabinet member, he still is not one of the better Is he known. the Ringo of the Lees? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Oh. <laughs> but he, he, did, he did have some credits to his name. So, so Charles, as a member of the prominent Lee family, received a private education, and then went on in 1775 to study at the College of New Jersey, which would later be renamed Princeton University. Hmm. Upon his graduation, he went on to read law with prominent Pennsylvania lawyer Jared Ingersoll before returning to start a law practice in Alexandria, Virginia. Now, Charles was far from the only lawyer in the family, as two of his brothers, as well as one of their uncles and a cousin, all practiced law in Northern Virginia as well. So. There were lots of lawyers in the Lee family. Yeah, very lawful Lee. <laughs> the lawful Lees. <laughs> Lee entered into legal practice at the time that Virginia and the 12 other British colonies along the eastern seaboard were declaring their independence from Great Britain. Hmm. Little conflict that you may have heard of, the American Revolution. Heard of this one. So the war brought about Lee's first public office as he was named as Naval Officer for the South Potomac in 1777. Now, from what I've been able to find, despite the name, this was not a military role. This was yeah, more... I, I want to know what Navy <laughs> of the South Potomac he was an officer of. Did he well, have like a little sh sloop, a little rowboat that he'd pedal around in? I mean, <laughs> he, he took a piece of paper, folded it into a boat. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> he put a candle in it and said, this is my fire ship. And he, and he was disappointed when it didn't work. <laughs> so his role was really more about like port operations, custom duties, mm. things like that. And Lee would continue on in this role through the war. And even after the treaty of Paris was signed in 1783. So as we mentioned, you had mentioned the other Charles Lee. This is not the general in the continental army named Charles Lee. I'm just glad that that guy's name was Charles Lee and I wasn't totally <laughs> getting things wrong. No, he is in fact Charles Lee. And if you do an online search for Charles Lee, you'll probably end up on him versus this Charles Lee. Yeah, he's cowardly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he definitely 
that Charles Lee was much more, there's much more to talk about him in terms of the Revolutionary War than our Charles Lee, because that's pretty much the end of the Revolutionary War in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Bing, bang, boom. Good job. So with American independence secured, our Charles Lee started acquiring new offices, both in public service and in private ventures. So he became the clerk for the Common Council of Alexandria in 1785. And in the same year, George Washington, guy you may have heard of, he helped, George Washington helped to establish the Potomac Company and Lee became Mm. the company's secretary. So we're starting Uh, with this this link to George Washington. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the Potomac Company worked to develop a network of roads, canals, and locks, which would link the Potomac River with the James River and the Ohio River. Mm -hmm. Very lofty goals. Though the Potomac Company did have some success, Washington's dream of having the Potomac be the key transportation corridor for the nation never really came to fruition. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's, you know, he, what, what, what the Hudson River ends up doing in New York. You know, with the locks and the canals going all the way to the Great Lakes, Washington thought he could do that down here in the Potomac region. There's just a few too many rapids and (laughs) and such things in his way. Exactly. Exactly. It just didn't work out, even though Washington, that was a pet project of his for decades leading up to and even after his presidency. He was really interested in this, but it just it never came to be. Mm hmm. But beyond just working together with the Potomac Company, Washington retained Lee as his lawyer. Mm -hmm. Lee Lee also became the city prosecutor in Alexandria at some point. So really getting these legal credentials under his belt. As was often the case back in the day, though Lee acquired new offices, it doesn't necessarily mean that he gave up any that he was currently holding. And we've seen this in other episodes of the series, you know, folks just keep on accumulating office after office after office. And it's like, so at some point did, <laughs> how did you balance this? Okay. So from nine to nine Oh five, I'm in this office, nine Oh five to nine ten, I'm in this one. I, I just wonder if they looked at some of those like European monarchs who would have the really long titles, you know, and it's like he is the uh, Lord of Brandenburg and the Earl of Salisbury and the chef at Chef Boyardee, the <laughs> King of Brandenburg, you know, they just wanted to match the Europeans in titles. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it shows that, you know, most of these offices weren't necessarily considered full-time offices and sure. we'll 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 come back to that. So, Henry Lee, Charles' father, died in 1787 and in his will, the Leesylvania plantation passed on to his wife Lucy. Charles's brother, Light Horse Harry Lee, was excluded from most of the inheritance due to his poor decision-making when it came to finances. Ouch. Would not want to be around that Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's an awkward... Like, I, do, do you think he knew or was like the wills read aloud? And then he's like, son of a gun. <laughs> I, I hope they prepped him beforehand. Because... <laughs> him beforehand. <laughs> but so, you know, some family tragedy. But 1789 would prove to be a pivotal year for Lee. With the ratification of the Constitution and the establishment of a new government, Lee acquired a lucrative post in the federal bureaucracy, tax collector for the port of Alexandria. So here we go. Got another office. It's a good position to have back then. (laughs) Absolutely. You always want to be the person with the money. (laughs) Yeah. 
He also married his, and we we kind of shudder at this in the present day, but he married his second cousin, Anne Lee, oh. that year. Well, a little, little too close for comfort. But. As, you know, as, uh, as TR once told his nephew, way to keep the name of the family. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, it does make things easier. She didn't have to, <laughs> have to change Who's anything. We're taking on. Um, oh, problem solved. <laughs> so Anne had been born in 1770, making her 12 years younger than Charles, who was 31 at the time of their wedding. They had six children together, starting with the birth of Anne Lucinda Lee in 1790, but at least two of the children died shortly after birth. Hmm. Now, 1790, the next year, would see Charles's childhood home at the Leesylvania Plantation burn, and two years later, his mother, Lucy, passed away. So, so like burned as in lost, gone to the foundation? Ooh. That's, that's what it sounds like. It, it sounds like, and, and I do talk a bit more about it towards the end, but it does sound like there was some rebuilding, but you I'm know. gonna go ahead and with no evidence proclaim insurance fraud. I'm gonna go ahead and just <laughs> Well and, and and I wonder if Charles Lee was the insurance agent. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, he's got a lot of titles. I mean he was the firefighter, but he was off that day, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, we're we're just gonna write that check for him. Yeah. And by them I mean me. <laughs> yeah. So Charles did inherit the plantation and kept possession of it for the rest of his life, though he did mortgage part of the acreage to another member of the Lee family for a short time. Now, it is likely that Charles, who already enslaved two individuals in Alexandria, also inherited some, if not all, of the enslaved individuals on the plantation. Do you have a count? Any idea how many? I wasn't able to find an exact count. The only the only count that I had was that at least at the time of Henry Lee's death, so, you know, that was a, mm-hmm. a few years before his, his wife passed away, but there were 55 people enslaved at the plantation at that point. Oh, got it. Got so, it. Oy. Yeah. Something you, you see a lot of at that time, and just every time you're like, ah, yeah. no. <laughs> and, and that's the thing, you know, it, it really is important to talk about, and, and especially as we get to the ranking period of this episode, that's always something that we try to come to when we talk about scandal and mm. disgrace. So. Yeah, yeah. But in 1793, Lee was elected along with Samuel Errol to represent Fairfax County in the Virginia House of Delegates. Okay. He would be elected to two more one-year terms. So now he's starting to make a name for himself kind of at the state level. Now, I know this is hard to believe, but he finally got around to resigning some posts. <laughs> he said i just i just can't do it anymore uh, this house of delegates thing you know it's it's a big deal so he did resign as the tax collector for the port of alexandria in 1793 and as alexandria city prosecutor in 1794 but then he was also elected to the alexandria city council in 1794 so he just exchanged one office for the other really <laughs> yeah. In his brief tenure on the council, Lee advocated for Alexandria to be removed from the District of Columbia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So with the Residence Act, and and folks may not realize this, but if you look at a map of Virginia nowadays and you look at Arlington County, you Mm -hmm. see it pretty much correlates with District of Columbia across the river. And that's because that region was actually a part of the district. Yeah. 
when the Residence Act was passed in 1790. So that in 1790, it originally included the land from Maryland and then also Northern Virginia. Yeah. But the part of the district that had previously been part of Virginia was ultimately returned to the Old Dominion in 1846. So Charles yeah. never saw that come to play, but that was something that he advocated for. And it's, you know, when, when they made that district, it's a 10 by 10 mile square, if I remember right. Mm. And it's, it's almost kind of anchored at one corner was Alexandria, a city that existed. At the other corner, Georgetown, you know, a city that had existed. And then in the middle, you know, like this beautiful malarial swamp <laughs> of snakes and mosquitoes and just ruined tobacco soil. <laughs> that They said, that that's going to make a great capital someday. <laughs> We've got a vision just ignore everything that's there right now. Right. We'll figure it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they saw it. They saw through the swamp. <laughs> <laughs> saw through the swamp. Yeah. So Charles Lee would have to resign from even more posts than he's resigned to date. When President Washington, his associate from back in the day, reached out in a letter written on November 19th, 1795, about a vacancy in his administration. So Attorney General William Bradford, who we've discussed in a previous episode of the series, had passed away in late August, and the president decided to turn to a fellow Virginian to fill the post. John Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice psych out. Good job. Char Charles Lee was not first on his list. Marshall declined the appointment. Ah. So then Washington gets together with his close associate and former Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton. May have heard of this guy. He got together with Hamilton in trying to figure out how to fill the vacancies in the cabinet because they were starting to add up at this point. Edmund <laughs> Randolph had resigned as Secretary of State. Bradford yeah. was dead. So he really needed to fill some posts. And at this point in the Washington presidency, he was really struggling to get folks to accept in part, politics, the factions were really heating up. Mm -hmm. Folks were like, yeah, I don't really want to get involved in this. Yeah. Also, as we'll see numerous times over the series, being a cabinet member could be quite expensive. You know, it, yeah. it, it wasn't yeah. necessarily it wasn't necessarily something that you went to to make your fortune. In fact, many cabinet members would end up leaving and having to sort out their finances because they would trust the wrong person with them, things would fall to the wayside, they'd end up spending more than they thought. Yep. So yep. it was hard to convince folks to join the cabinet. And so Washington and Hamilton, they considered all of these permutations. Maybe we can move this person to this office. Maybe we can get this person for that office. And so finally, on November 19th, Washington settled on someone who he knew, his own lawyer, Charles Lee, to fill the post of attorney general. He had some experience with him. He knew, okay, this, this guy knows his law. So he wrote to Lee. Lee agreed to the appointment on November 30th and promptly resigned from the remaining roles he was in, including his seat in the Virginia House of Delegates. And he proceeded to Philadelphia, which was the capital at the time, to take <laughs> right, up his new post. Moving capital. <laughs> <laughs> the roving capital. <laughs> so Charles Lee assumed office as the third attorney general on December 10th, 1795. And as we've discussed in the episodes on Edmund Randolph and Bradford, who were Lee's predecessors in the role, the mm -hmm. position of attorney general was a part-time position at the time. 
So mm-hmm. at this point, and you know, we think of the position of attorney general and we immediately think of the Justice Department. Well, there was no right. Justice Department. Right, right. <laughs> and Not for like eight, six to 80 years, something like that. <laughs> the Grant administration. Right. Yeah. And so at this point, the attorney general's primary roles were to provide legal guidance and recommendations to the president and to the administration, as well as to argue cases before the Supreme Court that involved the federal government. Mm-hmm. Now, unlike his predecessors, it doesn't seem that Lee was quite as attentive to the affairs of government. <laughs> With his predecessors, even though it was a part-time role, they were still pretty active. You know, even if they weren't in town, they would be corresponding back and forth with Washington, but, you know, they were pretty active. So less than a year after he assumed the post, Washington wrote to Lee on November 14th, 1796, asserting that, quote, this letter is for your eye only. It is written for the purpose of expressing my regret for your continued absence from the seat of government. Oh, Rely upon it. It is productive of unpleasant remarks in which I must be involved. It will indeed is considered as making a censure of the office. To suppose there is no particular occasion for the law officer of the government at the seat of it during the recess of Congress is incorrect. Many cases have presented themselves since the adjournment requesting the opinion and advice of the attorney general, besides other duties marked out by the laws. Some points have called for your aid since I've been here and will occur without an hour's previous notice in times like the present. Let me entreat you, therefore, to come on without delay. Man, that is, you know, quite quite the slap. You know, if people were so polite back then in their letters, but that is certainly a calling to the, to the carpet, you know, get over here. Also, the timing of that strikes me. So you said that's uh, 96 mm-hmm. in mid-November. So... Does it like because Washington already announced he's resigned? Do we already know Adams is next? Like, I, I, I'm curious where that what's happening there, too. And maybe Lee had just been thinking, like, oh, well, you know, the guy I'm working for is about to leave office. I, I don't have to come anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like my boss has quit. I quit, too. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and by that point, Washington's farewell message had gone out. Everybody knew he was not running for a third term. I believe at that point, some of the electors had started voting. Mm-hmm. I think at that point, it ran until December, I think was the last one. And then it was... I believe February when they actually announced what the vote was, but yeah. most everybody knew by that point, you know, as folks filtered back into town. Oh yeah, I voted for this person. I voted for this person. Sure. But still, it is very and and you do wonder, like you said, Kenny. You know, did he just assume? Oh well, you know, Washington's on his way out. I'm not going to really be needed. But. <laughs> right. But this was also George Washington, who, yeah. if anybody was going to work until the last day, it was George yeah, Washington. <laughs> for sure. And likewise, you know, with Washington, you know, I know you've covered Washington as well. You get a sense that Washington was polite to a fault. But when he got to that point, when George Washington yeah. was not happy with you, yeah. you knew it. <laughs> and oh, yeah. this letter shows you knew George Washington was not happy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and the odd thing, so, and, and this kind of dispels the 
speculation about, you know, well, maybe it was just because Washington was leaving office because we continued on with the cabinet after John Adams became president. And apparently, but did he know he was going to, well, you know? Well, and apparently it didn't really change matters because Secretary of State Pickering wrote in September 1797, so a few months into okay. the new administration, that yeah. when he went to Lee's lodgings in Philadelphia to pick up some papers sent to him by the U.S. District Attorney for Massachusetts, Pickering was astonished to find that Lee, quote, is gone to Virginia and his house <laughs> is locked up. So not only is he on the road again, missing in action, but he yeah. apparently didn't tell the other cabinet members <laughs> that he was leaving. <laughs> so, so the thing that I start to wonder now, now that we're in the Adams administration, is that Adams was famous for doing that himself. You know, he, he was uh, off to Braintree, not in the nation's capital, you know, it seemed like as much as he could. So I wonder if at, at this point, if Lee's realizing like, well, if, if Adam's doing it, I can forget what Washington said. I can now follow the example of this guy, and I'm I'm going to go home to Virginia too. You know, <laughs> and I really don't have to tell anybody, <laughs> right? I mean, we're we're a small country on the edge of the world with a small government. Like, I don't have any staff practically. You know, there's no DOJ, like you said. <laughs> no one's going to miss me. <laughs> I mean, how long had he been gone before uh, Pickering showed up and realized it? You know. Like, and that's what I'm wondering. I'm, I'm wondering if he actually came back from when Washington called him back. Actually, so so this reminds me. There's a a fantastic beer commercial I saw once. That was it's like the scientists of Coors Light have invented a new way to appear productive at work, and it is the steaming fake mug of coffee. And it's just like a mug of coffee that you put in your desk, and it's always steaming. And and in the commercial, people will walk by and be like. Look at him. He the steaming coffee. He came in early and then like the guy's really sleeping in bed at home. You know, and then oh, look at that coffee steaming. He must be burning the midnight oil. He's getting a promotion and really he's off at a party. Like that's that's our guy right here. That's that's Lee. He's just got like he has an aide who like puts a steaming cup of coffee on his desk every day while he's off in Virginia and he's like good work, Lucy. I love it. Yes, that that would be Charles Lee. Yeah. <laughs> Now, the one saving grace for Lee with Adams' assumption of the presidency was that Lee, unlike the other cabinet members that Adams chose to retain from Washington's tenure, was hmm. outside of Alexander Hamilton's sphere of influence. So, ah. so naturally, Adams kind of liked him. He was like, okay, well, yeah. <laughs> this It's a big saving grace with what's going on right there between those two. Th this guy may not be around much, but when he is, he's okay. Mm-hmm. As described by historian Ralph Adams Brown in his study of the Adams presidency, quote, usually described as a man of modest ability, Lee seems to have been, <laughs> that's, that's never how you want to start. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry. Sorry. Keep going. I mean, at least, at least it's modest ability. <laughs> Somewhere in the, in the middle. That, that's a very backhanded compliment. It's yeah. a very, I, I'm curious where it goes from there. So, usually described as a man of modest ability, Lee seems to have worked cooperatively with Adams and to have been loyal to him. So, mm -hmm. again, you know, Adams, that was one thing that he really did value was people's loyalty to him. And especially at this point, you know, and, yeah. and even early on, but especially as his presidency went on. And there's this 
growing rift between him and Hamilton, between him and his cabinet members, the fact yeah. that Lee was actually loyal to him, that earned him some brownie points. Yeah, the Adams family, like every member, was really bad at the party politics thing. Oh, you yes. Know? <laughs> and to a sense, it's like maybe there's, you, you give them like some credit for that, you know, the founding fathers really said like, no parties like that. It was not supposed to be that way. And maybe they're just trying to stick to the original vision, but it really starts biting them in the butt. And that's why like an individual personal loyalty becomes important because he's not getting it from like the Federalists. Exactly. You know, his, yeah. Exactly. You know, he is not getting it from the Federalists. He's not getting it from most of his cabinet. Mm-hmm. Except for this guy. So <laughs> the man of modest talents. <laughs> the man of modest talents. <laughs> Although also to be fair, John Adams didn't really like to have to compete with folks. He liked from what I've read of him, I think he really enjoyed being the person with the best talents in the room, the the most intelligent, the most well read. You know, I, I it's funny in, in where I am in my podcast, I've I've started researching Herbert Hoover. And I actually see some kind of parallels in mm. that Herbert Hoover was also of this mold of, I don't want to run for things. I don't want to campaign for things. I want to be recruited. And that's very much where the founding father generation was. They w- at least wanted to appear that way of, I- I'm not pursuing this. I'm not asking for this. You are summoning me because you recognize how valuable and smart I am, like of, of an old Roman model that mm-hmm. they have in their heads. Anyway, so that just jumped out to me of that one parallel, because it very quickly, like once you get to Jefferson, like now we're campaigning for stuff. We're, exactly. we're maybe quietly doing it, but oh yeah, we're, we're campaigning. Oh yes. Oh yes. Well, and to be fair to John Adams, you know, he, he would admit his vanity. He admitted, that, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> he's like, I'll tell you right now, <laughs> I'm vain. I want to hear how great I am. Mm-hmm. So I will give him that, but yeah, yeah. I don't vice president. I'm pretty sure I'm better than that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Let's drop this vice part. I'll just take right. the top office. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yes. so, you know, he's got Lee who's, who's, you know, working with him. Oh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm loyal to you. But this didn't mean, however, that Lee always provided the best advice. <laughs> Case in point, in 1798, when news of the XYZ affair arrived in Philadelphia, Mm-hmm. Lee advised Adams to declare war on France, asserting yeah. that, quote, to me, there appears no alternative between actual hostilities on our part or national ruin. And just a quick, quick recap for listeners. XYZ recap is the French asking for a bribe before they'll meet with American diplomats. You know, rude, a slap in the face, disrespectful. But let's go to war? Like, whoa, come on, man. Well, and, and what's what makes this even more absurd is that this was a time when even Alexander Hamilton was advising to hold off on a declaration of war. And Hamilton right. was ready to go to war like all the time. <laughs> well, okay, so let's let's begin Charles Lee because he's he's not at the office. He's not really following what's going on. He he probably just was like, what, France did something rude here? You get, Nobody's going to read this anyway. Just, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or, or maybe he just, he, he rushed in. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? Give me, yeah. give me a quick recap before I go into the meeting with President Adams. Oh, well, France, they really, they really disrespected us. War, war. We just got to go to war. Let's war. go to war. Yeah. <laughs> Lee did thankfully 
Wait, what? hold on. Last theory. He thought that as attorney general, he would be the general in charge of the troops. And and he thought it was a big moment for his career, potentially. Last, well, okay, that's my last theory. Well, well, to stop the attorney part, I'm just general yeah. now. He's like, that's how modestly good he is at his job. He actually thinks he's running the army this whole time. That, that's that's what happens around here, right? Right? <laughs> right, okay. right. So he did thankfully advise that the actual dispatches from the three peace commissioners outlining the scandal should be held back. And this was something which Adams agreed to, you know, he Lee said, and really was the case. He was like, if this gets public, we're going to have people outraged. We're going to have, you know, people, you know, losing their minds. And turns out that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Because, you know, the Democratic Republicans kept on, they're like, well, we've, we've got to see the dispatches. We've got to see what's going on. It's probably some right. Federalist shenanigans. And then when it was revealed that, you know, these French agents were asking for bribes, everybody was like, no. no. Oh, yeah, it's like, what? One of the greatest own goals in, like, early American political history, <laughs> you know, by the Democrats, just convinced. That whatever is in those secret dispatches is going to humiliate Adams and help us because they wanted to declare war on Great Britain at that time. That party did. And instead, it reveals the French are the ones being schmucks at the moment. So yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I just picture John Adams sitting back and saying, hey, I tried to tell you. <laughs> Absolutely. He must have had such a schm- smug <laughs> smile on his face that day. Just like, Sorry. <laughs> Should have listened to me. Yeah. I'm John <laughs> I, Adams. I'm always right. When will you learn? I'm president for a reason, and you're not. <laughs> yep. Yep. So the more time that Lee spent with Adams, though, it does seem like Lee was sold on the idea of seeking peace with France rather than war. So he finally did realize that that knee jerk reaction was probably not <laughs> not good. Yeah. Wait, how big is France's army? Oh, yeah, never mind. Never mind. Sorry. Yeah, Sorry. No, no, no. I misspoke. Oh, that France. <laughs> that, that France. France. <laughs> that. I'm sorry. So in 1799, when Adams appointed the then U.S. minister to the Batavian Republic, or as we know it today, the Netherlands, as the new U.S. minister to France in the new peace initiative, Lee was one of the few Federalists who stood with Adams and voiced his support for the president. Hmm. When Adams had to regroup and propose sending a second three-man commission to France to negotiate, Lee and his colleague, Secretary of the Navy Benjamin Stoddart, who had joined the cabinet in 1798, were the only two cabinet members to support this move. And this was a big ratcheting down of the tensions, like for the totally opposite of that calling for war. You know, now it's like, what can we do? It's going to be unpopular at home. You know, because to the Americans, it's like, wait, they just insulted us. We want to try this again. (laughs) Like, no, it's France's turn to, like, apologize. But yeah, yeah, definitely a a, a big, important move at that moment that he's supporting there. And at this point, you know, Hamilton's all in war mode. He's ready. He's, you know, the de facto leader of the army because it was technically George Washington, but George Washington left it all up to him. He's like, yeah, let's go to war. This is great. This is great. And Adams is like, hold on. Wait a minute. We there may be another way out of this. Now, Lee was in line with his cabinet colleagues when it came to the response to the Freeze Rebellion, though. And so, you know, we did discuss this in the Adams series. 
The Freeze Rebellion was a protest in eastern Pennsylvania over a direct tax on property that had been levied by Congress to pay for these preparations for the national defense in the case of war with France. In early March 1799, this protest turned a bit more raucous as Freeze led a group of citizens to the courthouse to free folks who had been arrested for obstructing the collection of the tax. Mm-hmm. Though Freeze was able to prevent the folks he led from wreaking too much havoc, despite their devolving into a drunken mob, literal drunken mob, there are descriptions of them. There's a lot of that in American <laughs> politics. Exactly. So, so much of and and then the drunken mob. And they were getting riled up and John Freeze finally did say, hey guys, let's let's cool it. It's okay. Look, go sleep it off. We'll come back later. Mm-hmm. He was able to prevent it from going too out of control. This did prompt Adams to call up a militia force to march to the area, and Freeze and a couple of other of the leaders of the protest were arrested for their role in leading the rebellion. Upon their arrest, they were arraigned, they were tried, convicted, and they were given the sentence of death. Lee, along with the other cabinet members, recommended that the sentence be carried out on John Freeze and his two associates. So they were advocating, you know, we need to make an example of these folks. They committed mm-hmm. a treasonous act. Mm-hmm. They need to pay. Adams, on the other hand, decided, you know what? We need to be gracious. His predecessor, George Washington, had pardoned the folks in the Whiskey mm-hmm. Rebellion. And so likewise, Adams decided to pardon all three. Yeah. Now, here's where we get to a little tension between Lee and President Adams, because Adams said, you know what? Let's pardon him. Lee dropped the paperwork. Well, President Adams waited mm-hmm. and waited, waited another day. Finally, four days of waiting, Adams sent this request to Lee. Hey, you remember those pardons that I asked you to draft? Are you going to get around to that anytime soon? This was a, a little tension. You know, he, he did ultimately do it, but you do get, again, this, this little tension between them. But because of he his just law... just dragging his feet. Exactly. I he mean, was trying to pocket veto the president. <laughs> exactly. Maybe he'll just forget about this. <laughs> you know, I've got better things to do. Just, just have my, my steaming cup of coffee He might out. have been on vacation in Virginia. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, may- he may not have gotten the original request. He may have been gone right. for months. Who knows? Right. <laughs> But ultimately, you know, this didn't hurt his standing with Adams too much. Adams still saw him overall as being very loyal. And because of this loyalty, you know, at the end of President Adams's term, so, you know, he was, he did not win re-election. But in those last few months, Congress passed the new Judiciary Act, created all these new judicial positions. And mm-hmm. so President Adams seeing himself as still the president, went ahead and appointed folks to these positions. Mm-hmm. And one of the people that he appointed to a judicial position was Attorney General Lee. He appointed him as a circuit court judge. With this appointment and with the end of Adams's term, Lee, rather than remaining in office until the incoming president was able to appoint a replacement, he left office as attorney general on the same day that Adams left the presidency, which was March 4th, 1809. And I mentioned yeah. that because we did have a couple of folks, Samuel Dexter and Benjamin Stoddard, who were in Adams's cabinet, went ahead and stayed on until Jefferson's folks were 
nominated and yeah. actually came sworn in and all that. So there was a little overlap with some of his, some of Adams's cabinet, but Lee said, no, no, I'm done. Those other guys weren't nominated to judgeships. I'm a judge now. I'm out yeah. of here. I'm taking my, my steaming cup of coffee. <laughs> I'll put it on the bench. I didn't feel a great thing about being a judge. Unlimited vacation. <laughs> exactly. Set your own hours. <laughs> no one can fire you. And as we saw with John Pickering, who was one of the judges that was impeached during the whole you know, Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans wanting to get rid of the Federalist judges. John Pickering was actually not so great of a judge, and he was often <laughs> drunk on the bench all the time. And it is so, I mean, you, you had a lot of leeway as a judge in those it, days. Yes, still to this day, still to this day, it's shockingly easy to keep your job as a judge. <laughs> so, so it's easy to see why Charles Lee, that this is his role. <laughs> he, he's yeah. ready. Yeah. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. So after Adams left office, Lee assumed his post as a U.S. Circuit Court judge. He would only remain in this post for a year, as the Democratic Republicans in Congress, shortly after Jefferson assumed office, passed legislation eliminating those circuit court positions. So Mm. the Federalist majority at the end of Adams' term passed this new Judiciary Act that created all these positions. And as soon as the Democratic Republicans took over, they were like, nope, we're going ahead and voiding that. We'll figure out our own Judiciary Act, but we're not creating all those positions. We are eliminating. So this put all the folks who had been appointed to those judgeships, including Lee, out of office. So at this point, Lee decides to return to private practice, but he did get a little bit of revenge because he represented William Marbury in his suit against James Madison over the Secretary of State's decision to not deliver commissions for confirmed appointments that had been made in the last days of the Adams administration. Interesting. I was wondering if we're going to somehow end up on this case. Yes. Though the Supreme Court ruled that Madison's action was illegal, the court also did not order him to comply with delivering the commission. So it, it's an interesting ruling. You know, it's like, yeah. okay, well, this is wrong, but, you know, what's done is done, and we're just going to move forward from here. But Marbury versus Madison is, of course, more famously known for establishing the principle of judicial review in the U.S. So yes. Lee has a role in this massive case that has become the foundation of so much judicial history in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Now, Lee did also serve as one of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase's defense attorneys during his impeachment trial. 
And this is one, so I mentioned John Pickering. John Pickering was actually impeached and removed from office. Samuel Chase was impeached. They held the trial. He managed to not be removed from office. So they ultimately didn't go that far. And Lee was one of the folks who helped with his defense during that trial. Lee also served as one of Aaron Burr's defense attorneys in his treason trial. What? (laughs) Pretty much every major trial of the early 1800s, let's call in Charles Lee. (laughs) Like, why? (laughs) Hey, you know what we need? We need a lawyer of modest talents who might show up for the trial. I know just the guy. Just the guy. <laughs> Hold on, he's not in. Okay, okay, we'll wait. We'll wait. <laughs> we'll wait. We'll wait. Can we order some? This food? is why courts move so slow because he, he set the precedent. Exactly. <laughs> we understand why justice is so slow right now. Yep. Yep. Sadly, we did suffer the loss of his wife Anne on September 9th, eighteen o four. Lee would continue to live at their home in Alexandria, but his brother Edmund and his wife moved in with Charles, likely to help with the children as their youngest child, Alfred, was only five at the time of Anne's death. So family coming together, trying to help to support them. Though I can't find solid confirmation on this, I did see in a few summaries of Lee's life that I found that he was offered an appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court by President Jefferson and declined the offer. Now, considering that Lee was pretty prominent, he was a pretty prominent Federalist. He yeah. he openly supported the Federalist cause. His role in acting as an attorney against the Jefferson administration in numerous prominent cases. Yeah. I kind of find this a difficult offer to believe. And so I'm I'm really yeah. wondering if this was some wires crossed somewhere. Yeah, dubious. Now, the only possible... He was trying to reach the other Charles Lee. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I don't think this is for me. (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and decline. I don't think this is for me. (laughs) Now, the only possible explanation I can find for the offer is the Princeton connection. Because James Madison, who was, of course, Secretary of State under Jefferson, also went to the College of New Jersey. But though they stayed there nearly the same time, I haven't been able to find that their college days, that they really overlapped because Lee graduated three years after Madison finished his studies. So I don't, Mm. if there was any overlap, it really wasn't much. And so I really don't see that they would have had much to do with one another. Yeah. And Madison, like he never struck me as the (laughs) hanging out sociable person anyway. (laughs) You know, he was nosing his books, graduating in what, like two years, you know, like, yeah. Now, I will say, and and this is something, I just finished recording the first episode of Madison's pre-presidency, and yeah. he, he did, he was seen as being rather sociable, you know, he, he definitely cracked down on the books, and mm-hmm. I mean, just amazing discipline when it came to his studies, but it does seem like he allowed himself okay. a little fun and was generally well-liked, but well- Madison. Well, and the interesting thing, so Madison did, he was close in college and afterwards, shortly afterwards, with Charles Lee's predecessor, William Bradford, who was also a Federalist. Got it. So, but I, I don't, I haven't found anything that really links Lee with Madison. So I think that was probably just, you know, some, <laughs> somehow, some confusion somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Lee did get involved in public service again. He was 
elected as the mayor of Alexandria. But the first go round, he actually declined the offer. So they elected him. He's like, no, I think I'm good. I'm just going to keep on practicing law and setting my own time. <laughs> How many hours a week of this job? <laughs> no, no. Uh, more than five? No, I can't do that. Too many, too many. <laughs> too many. But he did rejoin the Alexandria City Council. He became the president of the council in 1810 and then did finally accept an appointment as mayor in 1815. Mm. After a few years of widowhood, Lee did remarry in July 1809 to Margaret Scott Payton. Mm. I didn't find that there was a family connection there, so I think he may have branched out a little further than his second cousins for this marriage. <laughs> good. That's good. Trying something new. Let's try something you new. Know, try something new. Margaret was 25 years younger than Lee. And was aged, something very new. <laughs> very new. She was aged 26 when they wed. The two had four children together, only one of whom died in infancy. They would ultimately lease a new house in Alexandria and move out of the house where he had lived with his first wife, Anne. Well, I think she, she was probably like, okay, let's, let's start fresh. Let's, let's get our own place. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should get a new bed. Maybe we should get a bed that your dead wife's body still isn't in. I'm just saying. I'm just going to take this picture of her. And, I mean, you can look at it occasionally, but it's in this drawer. It's in the drawer now. <laughs> yeah. I'm your wife now. And um, call me by my name. Yeah. <laughs> can you remember what my name is? Yeah. <laughs> Here, I'll, I'll pin it to my, <laughs> my <go>. coat, <laughs> my dress. <laughs> They did have a few years together, but finally on June 24th, 1815, Charles Lee died in Falkir County, Virginia. At the age of either 56 or 57, since we don't know exactly what day he was born on, but he was either 56 or 57. He was buried in the cemetery in the county seat, Warrington. Do we have a cause of death? I wasn't able to find a cause of death. All right, murder. Murder. You know, Margaret finally got to the point. She was like, I am done with him not being able to remember my name. (laughs) We're just going to put this pillow over your head. (laughs) And nobody noticed he was gone from work for five months. (laughs) Well, the cup of coffee's still there. It's okay. (laughs) Yep. Nobody noticed him missing for months. Margaret did remarry following Charles' death to John Glasnell, and she passed away in October 1843 at the age of 60. Charles' mm-hmm. son, Alfred, sold the Leesylvania Plantation in 1825, and the ruins of the plantation are now in the Leesylvania State Park, which was dedicated in 1985 mm-hmm. and opened full-time in 1992. Mm-hmm. And that is the... Life of Charles Lee. <laughs> well, that was, I, mean, I think there's something aspirational in how little work he did, and yet how he still got summoned to, to these like prominent roles in Supreme Court jobs, uh, cases. Interesting. Interesting. So now we have a chance to kind of talk about how we feel about him, you know, try to gauge him on a few key points. Oh, we get to pass judgment? That's what I'm here for. (laughs) We get to pass a little judgment on him. (laughs) Starting with the first category, the whole picture. Now, this round looks at the overall career and character of this cabinet member, and each of us can award him up to 10 points. So, Kenny, what do you think about Charles Lee's overall career and character? Six? You know, it. so here's the thing. 
you, 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 on one hand, I feel like you want to give him some points because he made it to the cabinet, but everyone you're talking about will have made it to the cabinet. So, mm. it, so it feels like I can't really give him credit for that because everybody has that. A whole lot. And now we, we joked a bit and we keep, kept teasing that he wasn't going to work, but at least Washington called him out on it. And he did represent those really important Supreme Court cases. And that's really where I think it sounds like kind of the height of his career was. Is, is being there for Marie versus Madison, representing Aaron Burr, and such things. But still, when you're in such a role of attorney general, I expect you to have more. You know, I expect you to leave a bigger impact. So, so I don't think we can put him too high. I don't think we can put him too low. So I'd, I'd put him around a six. What, what are your thoughts? So I agree. And, and it's interesting that these big cases that he was involved in came after his time in the cabinet, but these mm-hmm. were very prominent cases that he had a role in, and it seems like a pretty active role in them. So, you know, we do have to give him credit for that. He did hold numerous offices all at the same time. <laughs> he did establish some prominence. He's not one that, you know, really established himself as a political leader, but mm. he also still managed to have some influence. He still managed to have a name for himself. And so I think that in especially in the legal realm, it seems like he was pretty well established. So I think that we do need to give him some credit there and especially talking about his entire career. So I'm going to go with a five for him. Okay. And so that gives him, for both of us, 11 total. Cool. With the next category, the go-getter, this round looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. And so just like with the last round, we can give him up to 10 points maximum. But I think that I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he probably will not get a <laughs> 10 from either of us but Definitely Kenny I could, be, I could be wrong so so my one question is when we talk about his time from the cabinet you know I think of some mistakes like oh, well first off during Washington's cabinet it seems like he was just a non-factor and getting scolded you know so like a, a zero from his Washington time it sounds like you know that that's not the letter you get uh, that you want in your performance review <laughs> and but and then in Adam's time you know he gives some bad advice like let's go to war with France at, at a moment but then he, he was in the favor of sending more delegations to France to help tune down the, the uh, violence, to help bring about more peace, to help resolve some of the issues. And there were issues, you know, like the French, if I remember right, they were seizing American ships at sea at that time. Mm-hmm. And there were some major things to figure out. I'd be curious, do you remember how influential he was when he had that position? Like, was this just him, like, Adam said, this is what I want to do, someone else agreed, and then uh, Lee's like, yeah, sure. Or was it like Lee was leading the charge and convincing Adams that, Adams, we should send more delegates? You know, do, do you have a sense of that from your research? I don't really get a sense that he was... Leading? Leading. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he, he certainly wasn't an Alexander Hamilton. Hey, yeah. let me tell you what, what we should be doing in the War Department. Let me tell you what we should be doing with the post office. <laughs> right. Right. He wasn't necessarily interjecting like that. It it does seem like he kind of he waited to be asked for his advice. You know, he may have given him a few comments here and there, but you really don't get the sense and it, it kind of shows in all the accounts of the Adams presidency and 
biographies of Adams. Mm-hmm. Charles Lee gets some mentions, but not <laughs> really, not really that many. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think I'd put him a three. Is probably where I put it. Like, like basically, I mean, maybe even maybe even a two, you know, because it was just he was a total zero in Washington, and then maybe like a three in Adams. So I'll, I'll give him a two to kind of round out those years. And I think I'm going to match your two because I think that Lee did play a role in terms of providing support for Adams at a time that, you know, before Benjamin Stoddart joined the cabinet or that position was even created, it was really the rest of the cabinet against Adams. And so Lee was that one person that he had for support when he was actually there. <laughs> yeah. But now. Yeah. Wasn't it tr- didn't Adams like fire his whole cabinet because of their allegiance to Hamilton? So is Lee the only guy who kind of survived that? So he only fired two folks. He fired Pickering okay. and McHenry. Okay. He retained Oliver Walcott, even though, and, and we did talk about that in Walcott's episode, that Walcott was retained, even though he was, he had his own role in this, but yeah. he also retained Lee. He retained Stoddard. Okay, so, so I a few. Yeah. So Lee was one of those who carried on to the end. But yeah, it, but what does that really, you know, in this category, the go-getter, thinking of somebody who really plays an important role in the cabinet, does just being kind of a yes person and saying, you know, yeah, I think you're doing a great job, Mr. President. Is that really a go-getter? Not so much. And like you said, Kenny, and I think that this is something that we really have to to take into account with Lee, the time during the Washington presidency, he had really no influence and he gets this scolding letter from the president. Hey, can you show up to do your job? <laughs> so, <laughs> he's, yeah. he's not going to earn many points here. So I think that a four total from us, which gets him up to 15 points, I think it's deserved. I think it's earned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a nice modest score for a modest guy and now we'll see how many of these points he actually retains because we are now at the hot seat round this round okay. discusses any disgraceful behavior of our actions committed by the cabinet member now this disgrace does not have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet so it can be any point in his life mm-hmm. and at this point we will be taking away points and we can each take away 10 points total so we can each give him a negative 10 so let's see jumping back to the the he inherited it it sounds like 50 plus slaves we'll say mm-hmm. you know uh, do we know what happened with them through his life did he pass those slaves on again did he set them free did he you know do we know anything about what that part of his life was unfortunately and and that is one thing with charles lee this has probably yeah this has been the toughest one to date to research because there's just so little about him and you know half the time when you're searching for him you end up with the other charles lee so (laughs) so we really don't know that much about how he ran the plantation what happened to the people that he enslaved we just know Mm -hmm. that that he was a slave owner and yeah I've discussed this with previous guests when we discuss people who did enslave individuals 
you know, that we do need to hold this into account. You know, this, this is a part of that. Ultimately, no number we give could really represent the, the horror and the, yeah. the, the travesty that is participation in slaveholding. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's a balancing act, but, you know, that is really the extent that we know that he did enslave individuals. There were 50 so people at the Leesylvania plantation. Mm-hmm. So then like I'm, I'm wrestling with somewhere between a four and a six because mm-hmm. I can't think of any other scandals. But I do think that these presidents who, who are not president cabinet members, these early Americans who owned slaves. They knew what they were doing was bad. They talked about it, you know, and yet they, some of them set them free, but a lot of them didn't. And so where I'm just trying to wrestle between four and six is that we don't really know what happened. So it's like, should I be assuming uh, six or I mean, what if he did set him free? I don't think I can assume he did. So I'm just going to settle on like a, a five, I suppose. I'm curious, what, what, I'm curious where you have for that. And if there were any other scandals that, that, I, that had slipped my mind. And so again, that was that's one thing with Charles Lee. It's it's hard to really point to things in particular right. with him because there's just so little about him. But you know, a I think we do need to take the fact that he was a slave owner into account with this. Also, just the fact that that scolding letter from Washington, the fact that he was seen as you know derelicting his duty it 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 doesn't really bode well it doesn't you know that that is rather scandalous and he he was just ahead of his time in remote work (laughs) he he was there he was ready for the zoom calls (laughs) (laughs) but i think that a negative five for him is I think that is fair and I will match you in that. And it's mainly because I just, you just, you really get the sense that he could have, the impact that he had wasn't really that great. You know, in, in mm-hmm. case in point, the whole, oh, well, let, let's just rush to war with France. That's also, you know, that's, that's not so good. Yeah. So not really presenting himself well in the largest role of his life and also being a slave owner, I think a negative five. I think that's a, a good score for this round. Yeah. And so now we have him at quick math here. We have five. him at five. So he does have a chance to pick up a few more points because our next category is tenure of office. So this is his time as a cabinet member. And now this doesn't really come into play with Lee, but it will with some of the other cabinet members we've got coming up. We only count the time that the cabinet member serves in a full-time capacity as that cabinet member. And so even though this is a part-time position, he was yeah. he was attorney general all the time. He wasn't an acting yeah. cabinet member. <laughs> as Washington's letter explained. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Trying to explain. You, you really... You do know that you are the attorney general, right? This is a full time. This is this is a job. Like, yeah. And so his tenure of office, he was attorney general from December tenth, seventeen ninety five, to March fourth, eighteen oh one. And so we do round, and so he does get five years. He gets counted for five years, so that's five additional points for him. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow he managed to last for five years. 
We don't subtract the two years that he was on vacation. <laughs> we do not subtract that. He right, he right, was cool. he was still attorney general no matter You're where lucky, he's Charles. <laughs> this time. Yeah. And we do also have some bonus points. So he could earn a bonus point for holding more than one cabinet post, but he didn't. He mm. was only attorney general. He does get a bonus point for serving in more than one administration. He's, you know, he crossed over. Yeah. He did not become president, so he does not earn that bonus point. <laughs> that That's only worth one point. That's only worth one point. <laughs> I, I, I think that needs to be worth one point. I mean, just, just, just food for thought. It's not going to happen too often. But, it uh, it isn't. Right. In one fact, point. It, it's only happened once thus far. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But that gets Charles Lee to a total of 11 points. Bravo, Charles. He managed to earn 11 points. So how's that? You've done some of these so far. How's that fit in your rankings? This is actually right now. Is this the worst? (laughs) This is not the worst. His predecessor, William Bradford, actually got less points. (laughs) Oof. <laughs> and part of that is because William Bradford didn't serve nearly as long. So that's uh, that's okay. where he's getting a lot of points here. Yeah, yeah. So he isn't the worst yet. He's he's not the best. He's not the worst. He is what what was the term? <laughs> modest. modest. <laughs> <laughs> the modest Charles Lee. We now have to ask ourselves, Kenny. After all I've shared about Charles Lee's life and career and what we've discussed, do you think that he is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, we can we I think though that we should like have an empty chair in his honor. <laughs> That chair that is sitting there, that is empty, that's his. If he ever decided to work, you could maybe have it. But, you know. I I think that's the best way to honor Charles Lee. (laughs) I think that's the best way. (laughs) So that is a no for me as well. So sorry, Charles Lee, you do not earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars you just earn whatever vacant seat is there we're gonna get so much hate mail for this from all those <laughs> charles lee fanboys and girls out there i mean they are so numerous you know all they are, they all, are legion they're legion. all over oh social goodness, media that needs to be the fan club legion there we go the legion yeah. <laughs> well thank you so much kenny for being here and even though <laughs> this was quite an interesting life, not yeah. necessarily in the, the, the best of ways for Charles Lee, but I hope it did prove insightful. And, and you know, I, I think I think it really does speak to that that we are going to run the gamut of cabinet members. You know, we are going to have the, mm-hmm. the Hamiltons who are the go getters who get involved in everything and make a large impact. And then we're going to have the Charles Lee's that. Not so much, but we they do still connect to major points in American history, and it, it helps us to see that there were so many people in the room at the time when they yeah, weren't and, out and on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> and Jerry, thank you for having me on. And, and this just goes to what a great job you do of, of filling in the full mosaic of, of these presidents and the, the cabinet members around them. 
And, you know, when you have that full picture, it's just it's just that much more of a rich picture. And so I really appreciate you inviting me on to, to talk about Charles Lee. Absolutely. And to all of you out there, please, once you get done with this episode, go and listen to Abridged Presidential Histories, wherever fine podcasts can be found. As I said, we will have links on the page for this episode. I'll have links on social media. So please go and check it out. Special thanks to Alex Vambrose for his audio editing work on this episode. He's always a pleasure to work with. So if you would like to enlist his services for your podcast or audio project, I'll have a link to his Fiverr page on the episode posting on the website, which you can find at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. And until next time, everybody, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.